like I said, my name is Corey. I have, uh, I know I've shared this uh, with many of you, but most of my time is spent behind the scenes, so I don't get to get in the pulpit uh, that much and, and preach and teach, so I'm always glad to do it in and amongst the community uh, that so enjoys God's scriptures and his word. Uh, I work at a ministry that we have now reorganized we call Story People. I know I've come up here multiple times trying to get you to say a Hebrew word, limudim, and uh, we found that if you have to translate the name before you can explain what you do, there's a little bit of a barrier. So we have reorganized as Story People. That's because we believe that the story of Jesus makes disciples of Jesus. And our mission, our aim, everything we do is about helping people, churches, pastors, follow the whole story of Scripture to Jesus. In their preaching and teaching, in small groups, curriculum, everything that the church does. We love local church pastors. We love local churches and communities that gather around to follow Jesus together. And our mission and aim is to help them follow the story. So to get up and tell the story that leads to Jesus with you all is a great, a great privilege. Um, if you resonate with that mission and would like to speak further, I would very much invite you to grab me at the end. I would love to, to share further. We're now at storypeople.church, so if you go there, you can find more information. And we do a reading plan very much about the scriptures and helping us all walk through them together. Uh, so with that, now that I've given you my plug, I'm going to ask that we pray one more time for me specifically as we dig into the book of Ruth, this little four-chapter book that has worlds in it for us. So pray with me, pray for me as we dive into the scriptures. Jesus, we're here and all the more in need as we step into your scriptures. I pray that your story, Jesus, would be put on full display and that I would just be a mouthpiece to tell that story and to lead all of us, myself included, all of our hearts, to trust you more deeply, to follow you more sincerely as we love you and we know that you are good. So help us now as we open the scriptures to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you are anything like me, and that, that's, that can be, uh, I really like to be home. <laughs> I'm kind of a homebody. Um, my wife would, would tell you the same. Uh, I like sleeping in my own bed. I like uh, home-cooked meals, my own dinner table, my kids around, uh, you know, the same roof and, and, and uh, shower, all, the whole thing. Being home feels really, really good to me. I don't travel well. In undergrad, I, I studied abroad a little bit in Israel and Jordan. I can tell you I've never been so exhausted. It was not my home, it was not my bed, we were out all the time, I was exhausted when I came, I felt like I needed to, I was out there, just needed weeks to just recover, not to mention the heat and my skin complexion, and I was quite done for. Just a couple weeks ago, it was uh, in, in Texas, or just last, just last weekend, there it's very, very hot, as I mentioned. Um, and I, I just spent a few days in another one of these, uh, not as bad as my trip to Israel, but being away from home was just really hard. It's just difficult for me. I just, don't, I just don't like it. Thankfully, I had some friends there, really uh, uh, family, uh, who welcomed me into their home. And it wasn't my bed, but they made it home. I actually I have quite the uh, liking for Reese cups. And they had some of those there, too. So I felt very much at home. So a lot of these things helped to make it 
make it feel at home, and uh, the family was so, so generous and kind. And so there's, there's this element of, of being uh, with people that you feel a family of, of belonging that helps with that home. But still, there's this longing. When I came home, and I, it was, I came home very late, and my kids were asleep, and I had to hug my wife, kiss my wife. That was, it was wonderful. Sleep in my own bed, there was a And I think for, for many of us, maybe, maybe you know, some, we've got some adventurous folks here that have enjoyed some travel and stuff. That's just not me. But still, I think a lot of us can resonate with this feeling of home, of being home with family, of being home with our own sense of belonging. And I think we really realize it when we're not, when we're away from home, whether that means that we're uh, traveling, whether that means that we've got a hardship or in a hospital or these difficulties that come in, they take us away from home and we feel that ache. And, and so much of why I, I bring this up is because the scriptures themselves so resonate with this. In fact, there's a way in which we could tell the whole story of scripture just through this lens of being home and away. Of being home, going away, and then returning home and the rest that you find at home. I want to just take that as a frame to think about the book of Ruth, a book that really wrestles with this notion of being away from home, and then that return and what that looks like, how it comes about. But to do that, as always, we have to place ourselves in this bigger story. So you are welcome to go, and I've actually grabbed uh, one of your, your pew Bibles here, so you can grab find yourself in the book of Ruth. I'll even give you the pages. It's 241. And as you're going there, I just want to kind of orient us to the placement of the book of Ruth, because it's not the same in the Hebrew Bible order. Our English Bibles come from a Latin and Greek tradition that have organized the books according to a genre. So the histories and narratives are kind of put together, and then the prophetic books and poetry and wisdom, they're, they're kind of organized according to genre distinctions. But the Hebrew Bible is a little different. Hebrew Bible is trying to put these books together in this ancient ordering that kind of moves you through a theological argument. It's trying to impress upon something to the reader. And so it's, as you go there in your, your Bibles here, you'll find that it comes between Judges and Samuel, this in-between time where God's people have come out of Egypt. They, they're in the land, but it's not the rest and placement and home that it's supposed to be yet. We're still waiting for David to come in the story. Within the Hebrew Bible, this book comes much, much later in our reading. This comes in what's called the writings. The Hebrew Bible breaks down into three major sections. The first is Torah, or as we refer to often as the, the Pentateuch. This is the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The next is what's called the Nevi'im, or the prophets. And this actually begins with Joshua. So we think of Joshua as history, but in the Hebrew Bible, it's thought of as uh, telling the story of God's people from a prophetic point of view. That will move all the way from Joshua, Judges, not Ruth, but then into Samuel, Kings, and then the rest of the books of the prophets that we're familiar with, Isaiah and following. And then this third section, this is where it gets a little interesting because we start with Psalms, then we move to Job, Proverbs, and then we find the book of Ruth. And what these books in this writing catalog are kind of wrestling through exactly what I hinted at the, up, at the opening here, this idea of 
returning from exile. The big story of God's people is that they are in exile. They are far from home. And the writings are kind of wrestling through what that means. Some people have returned back to the land, but it's not the return they were looking for. These are in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Other stories are telling about the difficulty it is amongst the people that have returned. This you find in some of the prophets. There's a real struggle and wrestle with. We have hoped that God would bring about this grand return back to home, but home doesn't feel quite home yet. And this is where the book of Ruth is really wrestling. And so help us to see that we're going to get to the book of Ruth, but I just want to remind us of the larger theme of going away and coming home. And this actually begins, believe it or not, at the opening pages of our Bible. When we look to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you'll see that what God does in this is create a great piece of real estate for God's people. He creates home. And he rests his people in this wonderful place. Remember, in the beginning, it's all chaos and waters, uninhabitable space. So picture my four-year-old's room. After he's played in it all day, it is a disaster. And yes, it's possible that he can make his way into his bed, but it's not likely that he will do that without tripping, right? It's not inhabitable. (laughs) That's kind of where we find the world. And God makes it habitable, like my wife or I will do, which is clean up my my four-year-old's room, so he can actually make his way about and get his clothes, etc. It's a wonderful space, a wonderful home. And the humans are rested, placed in there, and they're given this command, right? Not to eat of the tree of knowing good and bad. They're, they're really called, in a sense, to trust God to know what's good and bad and not to take it for themselves. But we know how the story goes, right? The, Genesis 3, they, they come and they see this tree that they're not supposed to, to eat from, and it looks good in their eyes, and it's able to make them wise, and so they take it. They say, no, we will decide. We will do what is right in our own eyes and reject God's kingship and goodness. And so what happens? They're kicked out, exiled from home. And the rest of the biblical story plays that over and over and over again, including a return or a resting. You think of something like the the great exile that happens at the end of Genesis 11 with Babylon, and everyone is scattered out far away, but then God takes Abraham and brings him up into the land of promise and places him in the land. Or the famous one that we all know because we've seen the movie or heard the story of Exodus, where all of God's people are far, far away from home in Egypt, the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. But then God hears their cry, visits them, and brings them out of Egypt, brings them on this journey to return home and to find them rest. And in that story, this is really key for our reading of the book of Ruth, you have this character named Caleb, who is also the name of my four-year-old, not, uh, not by accident at all. And he is one who is fully after the Lord. He's the one of the, remember the 12 spies when they're about to go up into the land? And 10 of them say, no, 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 we can't go up. We've got to go back. We're not going to the land. We're going to go back because there's giants. But Caleb says, no, no, no. God delights in us. He's with us. We're going to go up. And he's described in Numbers 14.24 as one who is fully after the Lord. And you add to that that he has a different spirit in him. His name actually means wholehearted one. So he's one that is wholeheartedly after the Lord. He embodies this very characteristics that will find charged to the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy. 
Remember, Deuteronomy is this kind of grand speech that Moses gives to the people as they're about to enter the land. The next generation, he says, go fully after the Lord. Don't go after other gods. Don't trust in other means. Don't trust in your own might. Go fully after the Lord. Love him with all your heart, your mind, your strength. Be like Caleb. Trust him. Go after him. And there God will place you and his name together and you will dwell again. You will be home. That's the hope. And that begins to be realized in the book of Joshua, where God's next servant, after Moses passes, brings the people in, and he's charged to not only give rest amongst the people by pushing back the enemies in the land, but also allotments, places, actual allotments for the people to dwell in the land with God. That's Joshua's role. And of course, it it begins, but it's not completed. Because when we get to the book of Judges, we see that there's still plenty of people in the land, and the people still are kind of the opposite of Caleb. They're not fully after the Lord, and they're not fully going up, trusting him to push back the enemies. And so there's this dark cloud that hangs over the people. They're home, but they're not quite home and rested yet. If you move forward into the book of Samuel, is where we start to get a picture of how this might come about with this character, David, who actually brings full rest to the people. Rest, and God has given him rest from all of his enemies. They're pushed back. The gate giants and amongst the Philistines, they've been pushed back, and God is going to build his house. And that's the task handed over for Solomon. And Solomon, in many ways, just like Joshua before him, this man of wisdom, he's able to do that. He builds the temple, and God's people are there, and God is with them, and then the cycle repeats. They're not fully after the Lord. They start to go after other gods, and they start to then find themselves in exile again. This movement of home and away and return plays itself over and over within the scriptures. And so we come to a book like Ruth. Many of these little aspects of the story that we've just kind of reiterated here of being away and home and the struggle and the call to be fully after the Lord and cling to him, as Deuteronomy would call us to do. It's all part of the way this story of Ruth is being told. So that's one part of the intro. The second part, I've got to give you this wonderful little clue. I mentioned that Ruth follows after the book of Proverbs. I know we feel like we're Bible study, less, less preaching, but stick with me for one second here. The book of Ruth follows after the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs is all about... One word, what would we say? Wisdom. Wisdom. Fearing the Lord, respecting him to know good and bad, and trusting him for it. Wisdom. In the opening chapters, you have this description of Lady Wisdom, this amazing character who beckons the characters, both the the readers and the young son there, to cling to her, to follow after her, to trust wisdom. And all the things that are described of Lady Wisdom actually get picked up in many ways and repeated of another character in the book of Proverbs. Do you know what it is? At the very end of the book of Proverbs, there's this famous character often called the woman of virtue or the woman of valor in Proverbs 31. And what's so interesting about this is that so much of the way we've described Lady Wisdom, which is wisdom personified, kind of this ideal of sorts, comes to be described in a little bit more tangibility in this Proverbs 31 woman. It's as if 
this ideal, an abstract ideal of Lady Wisdom has become a painting on the wall to admire. It's a little bit more here. And then when you turn the page from Proverbs, you find many of the things described of Lady Wisdom and the Woman of Valor to now be described of Ruth. So in the progression of the order, you have found a, a, a character of Lady Wisdom and you found this famous description of this ideal candidate, sometimes used as kind of a, you know, a check mark for our women and our mothers and our spouses here as like, this is the ideal characteristics that we want to achieve, but it's actually, it's wisdom embodied in a character. And then with Ruth, you're introduced to her in flesh and blood. And how Ruth progresses and how she carries herself and her character are all ways that wisdom seems to be working out in the everyday. And in that sense, it invites us to step into that story. And so that's what I want to hold in our minds, both this bigger story as well as this placement of, of wisdom becoming embodied in this character of Ruth and look through this story to see how it plays out. I'm, I'm betting that most of us are familiar with the story of Ruth, and so I'm just going to walk through it and see if we can't highlight some of these nuggets that might nourish us in powerful ways. So with that, we remember that the opening of the story is very dark. This is in the days of the judges, great hardship. Remember, judges is the period where everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. They are rejecting God as king. They are going after other gods. And that darkness has a way of pervading itself into the land, into God's people. And so there's this great famine in the land. And uh, the, this man here, a certain man from Bethlehem and Judah, he picks up his family and he goes to a foreign land. He is now in exile. He has left home. He is away because of this famine. And there, him and he and his wife and two sons are there, and the name was Elimelech. And the name of his wife was Naomi. These are great names. Elimelech is my God is king, and Naomi is like pleasant or sweet. But the names of his two sons were Melchon and Kilion. Death and dying, you might render those. Just a little side note. The story is, starts very dark here. And what you find is those two sons and her husband all die so that Naomi is the only one to remain. Now they've married two Moabite women there, but it's really only Naomi. She is the remnant in far away land. An incredible hardship that she experiences here. Now we know this progresses further with she starts to return home with her daughters-in-law. This is down in verse six. She's coming out of exile because she heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people, had visited his people, had cared for his people, and given them food. So she sets out for the place, and of course, this is this famous scene. She charges her daughter, says, go back. Don't come after me. What, what goodness could I bring to you? No, go back. Go back to your people. Go back to your land. Go back to your gods, O Moabitess women. Another people, another set of gods that they're worshiping, you go there, I'm going home. One of the daughters says, okay, I'm going to go back. But famously, Ruth, and this is probably the line that we all know when we think of the book of, of Ruth here. There's kisses, there's departing with Orpah. But then you have Ruth saying, do not press me to leave you or turn back from following after you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. 
Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and more so to me, if even death parts me from you. And so Naomi sees that she's strong and determined to go with them, and so she brings her along. Ruth and Naomi join together to go back home. So the return, return begins. And of course, when she gets home, everyone is in a big uh, hullabaloo here. They're, they're seeing uh, Naomi, and she's just devastated. She comes back with nothing, and so she has to say, don't call me Naomi, the sweetness, pleasant, right? Call me Mara, which means bitter. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt so harshly with me and brought calamity upon me? That's a little, on the surface, that doesn't sound quite like exile, but these are the very kind of words that are used to often describe the hardships that God's people experience down in Egypt or in exile. So the story on the surface has certain progression of plot points, but the colors that it's drawn in are all the story we've already heard of being away and coming home, of being in exile and coming back to the promised land. Naomi begins her return. But it doesn't end there. Remember, she is empty. She may be physically back in the land, but home is quite not right yet. Chapter 2. Well, Naomi had a kinsman, that is a, a redeemer. This was in ancient Israel. If someone had lost property, it was the right and responsibility of another to come in and to right that wrong, to care for them and to take up the responsibilities of the family. Boaz is that person on the side of uh, Elimelech. And so Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go after the field and glean among the ears of grain. And I'll go after someone in whose sight I may find favor. So Naomi goes. And just then, this is verse 4, Boaz came from Bethlehem. He said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. This is a great greeting. This guy's got his workers and he's industrious. He looks like many of the ways in which the descriptions of this woman of valor in Proverbs 31. He's industrious, cares for his workers. The Lord bless you, he says. Verse 5, then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers? To whom does this young lady belong? The servant in charge of the reapers said, she's the Moabite who came back with Naomi from country of Moab, she said. Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the reapers, that is, going after them. So she came, and she has been on her feet from early this morning until now without resting even for a moment. So Ruth is being described as someone who's going after, clinging to God's people and going after the reapers in their field. The very descriptions that we are charged in Deuteronomy for God's people to do, to go after the Lord, to cling to him. Ruth seems to be embodying these very characteristics. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field. Don't go after other fields. No, no, no. Stay here. Keep close. Cling to these young men, young women here. Keep your eyes on the field that is being reaped and follow behind them. Go after them. I have, uh, I have uh, ordered the young men not to bother you. If you get thirsty, go to the vessels, get some water. If you feel you know, hungry, we'll take care of you. She says, Falls before her, uh, Ruth falls down prostrate uh, on her face and says, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me? And I hear verse 11, Boaz's response. 
all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me how you left your father and mother. You've left behind your land, your country, your gods, your native land, and you've come to this people that you've not known before. May the Lord reward you for your deeds. May you have full reward of the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Let's just pause here for one second. The language being used, again, is the same language being used when we describe God's people being cared for by the Lord. It's this weird thing where God sometimes is described in imagery of a bird. A mother bird gathers. This is Deuteronomy 32. This beautiful passage where he gathers them up like a, like a mother bird and they're under his wings, right? Care and concern described in bird imagery. We see other places in the prophets and probably for many of our ears famously, remember Jesus speaking of Jerusalem. So much I've wanted to gather you up like a mother hen gathers her chicks. But of course Jerusalem would not have it. Ruth, on the other hand, is very pleased to be gathered up by the Lord and his care through his people. And so here, Boaz recognizes this. And then she said, May I continue to find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I am not one of your servants. There are three times where this language happens within the whole of the scriptures. Here is one. The other is when Joseph restores his family at the end of Genesis. And the third is Isaiah 40, a passage that all of the gospel writers open their books with to announce God's coming king who's going to restore his people. Ruth seems to recognize that through Boaz, through God's people, God's restoration is happening. These are ordinary people playing out their ordinary lives, but in a way that exemplifies God's character and care and Ruth seems to recognize that restoration, it's coming. I may have come home, and it may not be the return that, that we thought it might be, but the restoration is on the horizon through Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. The little story seems to echo the bigger story in some wonderful, wonderful ways. And so if we move through the rest of the story, what ends up happening is they gather, they've got mealtime, and... Uh, she gleans more in the field, and of course, Boaz can't have her go home without lots to take home to mother-in-law, Naomi, and so he bundles her up, sends her out. It's this wonderful, generous act on behalf of Boaz. And of course, Ruth, Ruth comes home, tells all this to Naomi. She's like, oh my gosh, providentially, you seem to be finding yourself in the kinsman redeemer's field. It's as God, in the midst of the ordinary, is doing something extraordinary. Don't go after others. Stay close to him. He'll take care of you. An amazing start to restoration. That's chapter 2. Let's look at chapter 3 here. This is where things get a little, little interesting. If we know the story, in Naomi's attempt to get Ruth to find rest, to be settled, she makes a little plan. It's a little, we'll call it unorthodox, or a little odd here. She wants Ruth to, to change her clothes and present herself before Boaz. Let's spice things up, we might say. Not clear exactly what's intended here, and I don't want to get into the details, but needless to say, what doesn't happen is that plan. Yes, Ruth goes, and yes, she presents herself to Boaz. And yes, there's a conversation, but all the things that maybe 
we might feel a little uncomfortable with, don't happen. She just spends the night there. There is no intimacy between them, but there is a promise on Boaz's part to make good and take up his right and responsibility if another will not have her. And I just want to look at the language there because it's really, really key. When, there, when, when this woman, behold, there's a woman at my feet, when she's discovered, drop down to uh, verse 8, at midnight, this is chapter 3, verse 8. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and there lying at his feet, behold, a woman. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. You're the, you're the kinsman redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty is better than the first, right? You seeking restoration for Naomi is even better than the first of coming into my fields and garnering food. Your loyalty, better than the first, you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. Why? For all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. Only other place where we have the description of a worthy woman, or we might say a woman of valor, in Hebrew it's Eshet Chayel, is here and in Proverbs 31. This ideal woman, who's the embodiment of wisdom we see in Proverbs 31, is being put on display for us in flesh and blood with a character like Ruth. Someone who is loyal and clinging and following after God. This is wisdom lived out. Walking and talking. Exemplifying God's key characteristics that he calls God's people to follow after. Ruth is following in that suit. She is exemplifying those, those characteristics. And so the rest of Boaz's words is saying, hey, it's, I agree, yes, I am next, but there's someone more closer to me, so rest here and I'll sort it all out tomorrow. If he will redeem you, great. But if not, then I will redeem you. So he takes up his responsibility. That's chapter 3, now chapter the final chapter, and here we get to see something of a full restoration. So Boaz goes up, this is uh, verse 1, he goes up and to the gate and sits down there, uh, uh, down there next of kin of whom Boaz had spoken. He comes passing on by. So Boaz says, come here, friend. You know, it's, it's literally, um, he's not named in this story. It's kind of a funny uh, little diss on him. Boaz has a name, Ruth has a name, Naomi has a name, the kids have a name, but the one who's actually supposed to be the kinsman near he's a nobody it's a it's a polonia lamoni in, in hebrew literally so it's just a you you guy you you no name guy a little diss on him so uh, he says come here sit down and he came over and sits down then he gathers the 10 men together and then boaz makes the case before him to take up and in his case he's he's kind of making it persuasive to the other guy to say hey take up this you get some land this will be great you can pick up naomi and, of course, the guy's like, sure, yeah, I'll do it. That'd be great. But then drop down to verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you are acquiring Ruth the Moabite. Now, Boaz knows Ruth's character, and the other guy doesn't. So he knows that if he gets 
this character, Ruth, he's one. More precious than gold, right? Who can find a woman of valor? She is more precious than rubies. He's found her. The other guy doesn't know. So, of course, what does he say? When he hears, oh, in the day you require the field of the hand of Naomi, you also get Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the dead, to maintain the dead's name on his inheritance. That means the kids that you raise up will not be yours. It's part of the legal prescription that he's there as right and responsibility to care for the family. It's not going to benefit him. And so he says, I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. I'm not going to hurt myself to take care of them. Take my right of redemption for yourselves, for I cannot redeem it. Verse 7 and following will lay out that Boaz in the ceremony to solidify this. And then Boaz takes Naomi as his wife. They're intimate and they have a child. And this is the restoration within the story. Where before God's people, Naomi comes home and she is empty. She's been bereaved. She has lost everything. She only has Ruth, the Moabitess, a foreign woman who was married to her son, now deceased. But here she comes home and now the family has been not only restored, but fully, bountifully restored with a child. And the climax of all of this, and this is why it's so important, this little story is just a one little picture of movement from destitute on its way to restoration. Because the child that they have, do you see the, the very end here? Boaz took Ruth, this is verse 13. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. They came together, and the Lord made her conceive, which gave, she bore a son. Just like God provided earlier, now he provides again. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. This is the restoration she was hoping for. A nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has borne him. And Naomi takes the child, laid her in her bosom, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to a Naomi. They named him Obed, and he became the father of Jesse, the father of David. This small little story showing ordinary people exemplifying wisdom and God's character participate in this larger picture of restoration where God's people in a very dark time, where home doesn't feel like home and they're still waiting for God to to push back the darkness and right all wrongs. These ordinary people exemplifying kindness and graciousness and provision and care participate in a larger story, a story that's leading to David, a story that ultimately leads to a truer and better David, Jesus. It's no coincidence that when we pick up in the New Testament, say, for example, in Matthew, that these characters get mentioned in the genealogy to lead not just from there in the past, but all the way into the present for the reality that Jesus has come. And he's begun this restoration by going to the cross, by redeeming us through his death and through his resurrection and his promises to you and I that the restoration has begun here and now. Would you participate? You're invited to step into this story and await a future that is so good and so blessed, a return where home will be fully realized in our hearts, that we will be with God in his presence and one another in a way where there is no more tears, there is no more death, there is no more hardship and suffering. 
Revelation 21 has this beautiful picture, right? That heaven and earth come together. Home is restored once and for all. The sea will be no more, and he will wipe every tear away from our eyes. This happens through Jesus' work. And so the call for all of us in this little book of four chapters, of ordinary people participating in an extraordinary story, is to participate in it, to trust the Lord, even when it doesn't make sense, knowing that he's good and he will bring about a full restoration. One day we will be home with our God and his people. I invite you in the midst of all the difficulty, myself included, that we would trust him, knowing that he's good and he will bring us all together and home one day. I'm going to give us a moment to just wrestle with this and then I'll pray and then we'll conclude. Would you pray? Jesus, what do we say in a world of brokenness and hurt where things don't make sense, where sometimes in our own home we're not at home? We need you so desperately to remind us of your goodness and remind us that you will one day make all things right and restore heaven to earth, that we will be with you forever. Pray that for myself and my friends here, that you would open our eyes to see you, to trust you, to be fully after you, to cling to you in all that we do, trusting you with our whole hearts, leaning not on our own understanding, but in all our ways, acknowledging you, knowing that you will make our paths straight, to realize your promises when heaven and earth come back together through Jesus. Do that here. May you come quickly, Lord Jesus, and restore us, bring us home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.